It was Sabbath, a sacred day of rest. But the chief priests and Pharisees had business to take care of. They had succeeded in condemning Jesus of Nazareth to a gruesome and tortuous death on a cross. This ancient method of execution was used from the 6th century B.C., all the way into the 4th century A.D. when the first Christian emperor Constantine abolished it. Victims of crucifixion had their hands or wrists and feet nailed to um, a crossbeam and shaft of the cross. In 1986, archaeologists actually um, excavated a victim of crucifixion, and this is a picture of a bone fragment uh, you can see the, the middle section is the bone and then the point that's sticking out into the side, that's, that's the nail. Based on the position of this nail, uh, going from the side rather than from the front of the foot, it's going from the side, they came up with uh, this, you can go to the next slide, uh, this illustration of what crucifixion would have looked like. Death took hours and finally came as a result of constrained blood circulation, organ failure, and asphyxiation as the body strained under its own weight. Jesus' crucifixion was short, about six hours, according to Mark fifteen twenty-five to 34. Let's see if we can get to the next slide. When Joseph of Arimathea requested his body for burial, Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. See, crucifixion usually took a lot longer than just six hours. Yes, so here's the illustration. You can see how the arms were were bent over the back, and then the the feet were actually nailed to the sides of the cross. So and it's not it was not the blood loss or the nailing that would have killed them. It was the position of the body being hung there for so many hours. And this was usually a, a Punishment that was reserved for criminals, for political agitators, for re- religious extremists. This was, this was a really bad way to die. And it was a disgraceful way to die. And if you can just put yourselves in the minds of Jesus' followers, how would you feel to have this person who you believe to be so holy and pure, to be the son of God, now killed in this way? That's like having Jesus being executed by electric chair or lethal injection, except a lot more painful. You can go to the next slide. So you can see in Mark 15, uh, it says that it was the third hour when they crucified him, but it's the ninth hour when he finally um, gives his last breath and, and cries out. So it's, it's about six hours that he was hanging on the cross. Next slide. This is a wonderful painting of Joseph of Arimathea taking the body of Christ down from the cross. They didn't want to leave the bodies there over the Sabbath. That would be disgraceful. Um, And so Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very wealthy follower of Jesus, had a newly cut tomb that was close to the cross. And because it was so close to the the place of his execution, uh, he offered to have Jesus' body buried there. The chief priests and Pharisees had watched Jesus hang on the cross for hours. They had mocked him as he suffered. They had walked by and said, Oh, you're the son of God, so you should be able to come down off of there. And then when he was crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, they said, Oh, maybe he's calling Elijah. We're mocking this man's incredible suffering. They'd heard him call out. They had seen him die. They'd witnessed the soldier pierce his side. 
there was no way he was lying in some kind of coma in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Jesus was dead. There was no way he was coming back from this. But the chief priests wanted, they needed to make sure that he wouldn't come back, whether in bodily form or in some myth or legend that his disciples spread. See, Jesus had foretold his death on several occasions, telling his disciples in Matthew 16.21 and 17.22-23 that he would be killed at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. So you can say that, see that he says, you know, he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer many things, he'll be killed, on the third day he will be raised. And then he says it again, the Son of Man is about to be delivered, they will kill him, he will be raised on the third day. But see, they, they haven't quite grasped what he means by being raised on the third day. But you know who remembers? The chief priests remember. And they're concerned about that. So while Jesus' disciples are huddled in some room somewhere, terrified to leave the house, the chief priests and the elders approach Pilate once again on Sabbath, the day when they should be worshiping, when they should be resting, when they should be thinking about creation. Instead, they go to Pilate with a plan. Matthew's account is the only one that shows this post-crucifixion scene in Jerusalem. And we're going to follow that account today in Matthew 28. Well, it's the end of Matthew 27, beginning of Matthew 28. If you want to turn now uh, to Matthew 27, verses 63 to 66, you can follow along with this account of uh, what the chief priests and elders requested of Pilate. I can imagine that Pilate would not have been happy to see them again. He just got rid of them uh, the day before, and they had been very, very troublesome. He had not wanted to crucify Jesus, and yet he had had to go through with it because they were starting this riot. They were fomenting trouble. And so here they are again showing up at his door and, uh, and with a, a very interesting request. Matthew 27, verses 63 to 66. Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Pilate had narrowly avoided a riot the day before. He didn't need Jesus coming back from the dead either. The guards dispatched to the tomb were probably not Pilate's personal guards or even Roman soldiers. They were probably temple guards. The temple had guards to make sure that people stayed where they were supposed to and kind of keep order. And it was probably these men who were stationed uh, at the outside of Jesus' tomb, which means that they would have reported directly to the chief priests, not to Pilate. In the misty hours of Sunday morning, two women approached the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, probably Jesus' mother, made their way through the city of Jerusalem to the garden tomb where Jesus lay. Different gospels add other women to this pairing. Some of the gospels mention uh, Joanna, some mention Salome, um, and others, but Matthew names only these two women. 
what should have been a joyful time, the Feast of Passover, which, by the way, is the celebration of the exodus out of Egypt, right? It's, it's about their salvation from, this, from the last plague, uh, where the firstborn um, of all of the Egyptians were, was killed and their firstborns were spared. But then also this, this exodus, it is about redemption. And here, right during this time when they're supposed to be celebrating redemption, their Lord and Savior has just been crucified. It has become a time of anguish and mourning. Jesus, their Jesus is dead. And now they alone of the followers venture out to the tomb. There are no men with them. It's just the women. On Friday, Joseph of Arimathea had wrapped Jesus' body in a clean linen shroud. According to John 19, verses 39 to 40, Nicodemus, who had met Jesus earlier, in the, so in the preliminary uh, chapters of the book of John, we see Jesus, uh, Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. Well, Nicodemus doesn't show up again until Jesus' death, and he comes bearing 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. So this is an example. This is, you can see that myrrh is kind of like a, like a crystal, um, and then the aloes, you know, from like the aloe plants. And, and these were kind of embalming spices to, to um, ameliorate the odor of, of death because the body would have been laid out until it had fully decomposed. Then they would have taken the bones and placed them into a smaller location. Um, but in the meantime, they, they wrapped it in, in a sheet or, you know, in a shroud, a linen shroud with these herbs. So he brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, helped to wrap Jesus' um, body in the linen and the spices. And Luke 23, verse 56, says that the women followers had watched these preparations. They saw Jesus laid into the tomb. They saw the tomb stone rolled across the entrance of the tomb. And then they had returned home to prepare additional uh, spices for his body. They knew that he was dead. They had seen his body laid in the tomb. This was very final. Let's put this in, in modern terms. The body is in the coffin. The coffin is sealed, lowered into the ground, and buried. The funeral has taken place. This is it. It is the end. There is no way back. And yet, on Sunday, Mary Magdalene and Jesus' mother arrived at the tomb just in time to witness something extraordinary. Turn to Matthew 28, verse 2 to 4. So you're just going to drop down uh, into the next chapter, the beginning verses of the next chapter. Matthew 28, verses 2 to 4. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. You know, the angel could have just rolled back the stone. But instead, he sits on it. Take that, death. What an image of Jesus' victory. And you know, this angel who is an appearance like lightning, if you actually look at Daniel 10, verse 6, you'll see an angel that is described in, with the exact same words. His appearance is like lightning. And this angel uh, comes to Daniel with um, interpretation of a message that he'd been given previously. And this angel comes to explain to him. So it's probably the same angel, um, or at least, at the very least, they're described in the same way. And this angel has a wonderful message for the women. Ironically, the guards become like dead men, but the dead Jesus becomes alive. 
Imagine standing at the fresh grave of a loved one, watching an angel come down from the sky, unearth the coffin, open it up, and show you that there's no body inside. No wonder why the angel had to tell them not to be afraid. I mean, can you imagine, like, we see this kind of thing in, like, movies, you know, where stuff happens, and it's generally not a good thing if the body is missing. But in this case, this is completely different. You know, and, and this is interesting because pop culture has this infatuation with immortality. We have this fascination with, um, if you think about it, some of the trends over the last two years in literature and in films, things like zombies and vampires and all of these people who have defeated death or cheated death or are somehow immortal. But they always have this price to pay for it. You know, it's, it's not always a good thing. Uh, a lot of times they're bad. Um, and this, I think, is, is really a, a twisting of the devil, taking something that is good, taking something that Jesus had in and of himself. He was, he, he raised himself to life. I mean, this is, this, is, this is him raising him. It's not somebody else raising him or, or him having some kind of a disease or something like this. He is God. And when, when the women see this empty tomb, it is a good thing. It's a little scary because they don't understand what's going on. They don't know, you know, has somebody taken the body? You know, there's an angel here, but, but then there's, you know, what's going on? But the angel explains to them what has happened. If you look at Matthew 28, verses 5 to 6, the angel says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. This is a Herodian-era tomb. You can see the round stone, kind of like this one here, that would have rolled in front of the entrance. It's a narrow entrance. So in other Gospels, it mentions how they had to bend down to look inside. That's because the door was small. And you can see uh, inside there's kind of little crevice areas where you know, bodies would have been positioned. They look inside, and they see that it is empty. There is no body. And there's no back door in this tomb either. He didn't sneak out the back way. The angel had said, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. This emphasizes that this is the same Jesus who had been dead. Jesus had died. But he wasn't dead anymore. We don't know exactly when Jesus left the tomb. Because by the time that the angel addresses the women, Jesus is gone. Instead, the angel invites them to look inside the empty tomb as evidence that Jesus is alive. The angel continues with a command. He says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And you'll notice throughout this account, there's this emphasis on seeing. They see that the tomb is empty. They say, there you will see, he, the angel says, you will see him in Galilee. And then he says, see, I have told you. There's this emphasis on, on seeing. Tell his disciples. These women now have a message to carry to the disciples. First, that he is risen from the dead. And second, that the disciples should meet him in Galilee. Matthew 4 tells us that Galilee is where Jesus called his first disciples. Jesus wants his disciples to go back to where it all began to go back to the place where his ministry began, where they first came into contact with Jesus. This is coming full circle. <coughs> the women obeyed. I mean, what else could you do if an angel told you to do something? I mean, I would, I would hope that you would have enough sense to be obedient. 
As they ran to tell the disciples, they were met by Jesus himself. Up to this point, they had to take it on faith that the absence of a body meant that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. The angel sitting on the tombstone was certainly some proof, but seeing Jesus, that really solidified it. I think it's worth noting that these women believed, obeyed, and then saw Jesus. Because in other accounts, the Gospels mention that some of the followers doubted until they saw Jesus. Thomas, for example. He said, I will never believe unless I touch the holes in his side and in his hands. And when he finally does see Jesus, Jesus said, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Right? And these women did that. They believed that Jesus had raised from the dead even though they hadn't seen him yet. They believed and they obeyed. Matthew 28, verse 17 says that even those who saw him doubted, which is really kind of surprising. And, And it could be, you know, do they doubt that it's actually Jesus or do they doubt their own position with Jesus because they had abandoned him in the Garden of Gethsemane? I mean, you think about what kind of a reunion this must have been like. What would it be like if you had deserted your best friend <coughs> and then you're, you're told to go meet up with him again? How would you feel? This must have been a very uncomfortable, in some ways, reunion. So what happens next? The women obey. They go to tell the disciples. They know that he's alive. Now the disciples have to act on their own belief. Jesus repeated the angel's command to the women. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, meanwhile, the guards at the tomb rouse themselves. They see the empty tomb. Nobody. Who are they going to go talk to? Well, some of them go to the chief priests. They have to tell them, you know, this is what, this is what happened. I mean, this, there's, you know, there was this, there's this the earthquake, and then, then there was this angel, and then you know, there was this empty tomb, and, you know, now what? Well, the chief priests can't have... Oh, my word, thank you so much. I'm dying up here. (laughs) So these guards do the only thing that they can think of doing. They go to the chief priests, and they talk to them. You can see what they say in Matthew 28, verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people. Here's this tell again. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the second bribe that the chief priests and elders give over Jesus. The first one is to Judas Iscariot for the betrayal of Jesus so that they can set up a phony trial and kill him. Now they have this problem because it looks to some like he's risen from the dead. They have this empty tomb. So they have the second bribe to make sure that he stays dead. They need to circulate propaganda, a little bit of fake news. Kevin was talking about in his children's story about how um, you know, the Nazis were spreading propaganda, and so this one young man, Gunnar Ingen, was, was having to get people the real truth uh, from the underground, from the, from the, uh, the radio in, 
uh, in London. There's a problem with, with fake news. You know, there are people who have certain ideologies that they want to get across. And these chief priests and elders had a very specific message that they needed to get across. And that was that Jesus was not the Messiah and that he had not raised from the dead. That he was guilty of being killed. And they, they needed, on their lives, they needed that to be true. Regardless of what the guards, the priests, or the elders thought had happened, they knew that the disciples didn't come and steal the body. They knew that the tomb was empty, and they knew that the disciples didn't do it. But they weren't interested in the truth. Tell. There are two tellings in Matthew 28. The women are commanded to tell the disciples about Jesus' resurrection. Now the guards are commanded to tell the city about the theft of Jesus' body. And these two groups, I want you to imagine these two groups going out simultaneously with these stories. What would have this been like if you were a resident in Jerusalem? Oh, do I, you know, oh, he's, you know, he's, he's been raised from the dead. Didn't you hear, you know, these two women, they went to the tomb and the body wasn't there. Oh, but see, I heard that, you know, well, the disciples came and they stole the body at night. And like, can you believe that? I mean, just, ugh, like, I'm so tired of hearing about this. Oh, but are you sure? Because I also heard that there was an angel and, you know, and I think maybe the chief priests are lying. Oh, they would never lie. No, no. These two conflicting stories are are going throughout Jerusalem, and meanwhile, the disciples are waiting. One group of messengers, the women, saw an empty tomb and believed. The other group, the guards, saw an empty tomb and deceived. The women took away hope. The guards took away lies. The truth about the resurrection next to the sacrificial, de- sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, is the most important belief of Christians. And I'll tell you why. If we don't believe in a resurrection, there is no hope. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen to 19 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are to be the most pitied. But if we do believe, 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. See, resurrection fundamentally changes the equation of the human situation. Jesus had to die for our sins, yes, but he also had to rise from the dead in order for us to have any hope beyond this life. See, we believe in a two-phase atonement. Jesus had to die on the cross, but then he goes to heaven after he's raised. The disciples see him, and, and he ascends into heaven. And in heaven, he's performing a high priestly ministry. He's interceding on our behalf. We have to have the second phase of the atonement. Jesus has to be alive. We can't just say, well, you know, Jesus was a wonderful teacher and he had many wonderful things to say, like Buddha, you know, like Mahatma Gandhi. You know, Jesus was a very wise man and he died and it was very tragic and that's historical, but he didn't raise from the dead. He wasn't divine. That's a problem. We can't say that kind of thing and be Christians. To be Christians means that you believe in a risen Christ. If there is no risen Christ, then you are still in your sins, and let me tell you, that is not a good place to be. I, most of the time, think that I'm a good person, but every now and then, uh, my dark side comes out, 
Um, and it is, <laughs> unfortunately, it often comes out because of my daughter and my dog. Because they're the two elements in my life that I can't control. I mean, I can't control Kevin, but, you know, like, <laughs> Kevin's his own thing, you know. I have to let him, you know, he can work out his salvation with God. But, um, but my daughter, I'm responsible for making sure she's safe, you know, and uh, making sure she takes her naps and making sure she eats her vegetables. And um, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, Adelia was being very, very stubborn. I don't know where she gets this from. Um, <laughs> from me? Yeah, well, anyway. She, she decided that she wasn't going to take a nap. Like, it just wasn't going to happen. No nap. Don't, don't need a nap. Well, I was exhausted. I needed a nap, which meant that I needed her to take a nap. And she decided, no, this was not happening. So I, I put her in her crib, and I let her, her sit in there, and I'm kind of sitting down, bracing myself for the cry that I know is coming, 20 minutes pass. I think that she's asleep. And then I hear this. Hi, hi, mommy, 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 mommy. And I'm like, oh no, no. And then the mommy becomes more urgent until it's full out. Mommy. And you know, she's just shattering all the windows in the house. And um, my patient started, you know, shrinking as the shrieking continued. And I finally went back there and I, you know, I comforted her and I was patient. I Gave her the pacifier again. I told her to lie down. I left the room. Mommy! Oh, boy. This happened like three or four times until finally it became evident that she was not going to take a nap. So I was like, fine. You can just hang out in your crib. Here's a book. Enjoy. Read. Be educated. And, um, <laughs> and I left the room. And I called Kevin, and Kevin was running a little bit late, and uh, so my patience level decreased a little bit more, and the dog needed to go to the bathroom, and so patience level goes a little bit down more. And, and I'd had a horrible lunch because it was a recipe gone awry, so, you know, like, it's, my patience bank was just like, it, we're running on deficits. And um, so Kevin says, oh, I'm, I'm almost there, I'm just pulling in right now. So I literally stand at the door with the door cracked open, I have the dog, and I'm standing there waiting for him to come up the stairs. He comes up the stairs, and he goes, hi, how are you doing? And I said, the baby's in the crib, she's not asleep, have fun, I'm leaving, because if I don't leave now, I'm going to say really mean things to everybody in the entire world. And I stomped off. <laughs> and I'm walking, you know, huffing and puffing, walking down, I don't even know how far I walked, <laughs> walking down this trail by our house, and I'm just, I'm praying, and I'm trying really hard not to, like, say bad things in my mind, and, and I'm just, like, mm, you know, and I'm feeling horrible the whole time, because, like, my daughter is the most precious bundle of humanity, and I adore her. Why am I so mad? And it just reminds me of this need that I have to be transformed, because I can't do it myself. And I know, I know, maybe that doesn't seem, you know, some of you I'm sure can relate, and it may not seem like that big of a deal, but I feel my sinfulness most when it's in relation to people that I love. When I realize that I can be so unbelievably angry and frustrated with someone who I love with all of my being and would die for, what's wrong with me? What is the sickness inside of me? This is why we need the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, we can't be transformed. It's, it's, it's one thing to see someone die on a cross and know that they died for you. That, that makes an impact. That might change the trajectory of your life. You might become a better person. But that doesn't mean that your sins are taken away. He had to rise from the dead in order for that to happen. 
We need him to come out of that tomb. If we do not believe the resurrection, there is no hope. And the only thing left is fear. And this is what the the chief priests and the elders and the guards had. They had fear. But do you remember, what is it that the angel and Jesus tell the women? Do not be afraid. Because perfect love casts out fear. That's what the resurrection does. The women and the guards had stories to tell. You know, the song that we heard, Were You There? Yeah, they were there. They were there. But they took away two different messages. The stories they told were polar opposites. One story was the fulfillment of thousands of years of promises. It was the assurance that Christ's sacrifice was enough to cover our sins and that death had been defeated once and for all. The other story was that it had all been a lie. And the empty tomb was the latest episode in the scandal of Jesus. The story of the risen Christ is the story of redemption. It is the gospel. In Acts, when the disciples preached, they preached about the risen Christ. The Christ who died and rose again. So let me ask you a question. When you talk about God to people, what do you talk about? When you think about God, what do you think about? I want to challenge myself, and this is writing this sermon, reading over the last several weeks, Matthew 28 and then the the final chapters of Mark, uh, Luke, and John, has really made me think about, you know, what does the resurrection mean for me? Why don't I think about it more? Why don't I dwell on it more? Why don't I think about, I can tell you why I don't think about the crucifixion more, because it's awful. Like, I can think about the crucifixion for 30 seconds before my stomach just starts to churn. I mean, those videos about the crucifixion, I can't watch them. Like, I just, oh, I can't. I can, I can feel it. It just, mm, it's so terrible. But why do I not think at least about the resurrection or at least about Jesus' sacrifice more? Why is that not always at the top of my mind? And when, people talk to, when I talk to people about God, why do I not talk to them about that? Because the disciples, that's all they could talk about. That's all they could think about. He's alive. He's alive. Did you hear? He's alive. This is big. This is big stuff. This is big news. I want to challenge myself and you to talk and think about the resurrection. Talk about it like it's real, like you were there, like it matters, because it does. You have a story to tell. Christ died for you, He was buried for you. And he rose again for you. You know, Paul says that when we're baptized, we're buried in Christ and then we rise in Christ, right? Our sins are dead and that part of us is buried, but then we rise again and we rise as new people. Resurrection has a very tangible meaning for us personally. We may not have been there, we may not have seen the angel or the stone rolled away, but what happened here happens in our hearts, Ask the risen Christ to come and dwell in your heart. To form a new heart. To give you transformation. What story are you going to tell the world? Are you going to live your life in fear, so caught up in the concerns of this world that you might as well be one of the guards who told the city of Jerusalem that Jesus was still dead? 
Or are you going to live your life in the reality of the empty tomb and the risen Christ? The book of Matthew ends with one last command from Jesus. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what will you tell the world?